Welcome, everyone, to the AI in Business podcast. I'm Matthew DeMello, Senior Editor here at Emerge. Today's guest on the program is co-founder and co-CEO of AI21 Labs, Ori Goshen. AI21 Labs is a Tel Aviv-based software company specializing in natural language processing-based systems. In conversation with Emerge CEO and head of research Daniel Fagella, Ori expounds on generative AI use cases that carry true ROI potential for every business and where the technology is expected to take us over the next decade. Together, they offer analysis of generative AI's capacity as a quote-unquote autocomplete style technology and where comparisons between the two begin and end. This is the first of three episodes across the AI and business and financial services podcast platform here at Emerge, sponsored by AI21 Labs. Stay tuned on this program in the coming weeks to hear from AI21 VP of Platform Dan Padnos discuss retail challenges and large language model-based solutions. We'll also be featuring Director of Enterprise Accounts Michael Elias that same week on the AI and Financial Services podcast, talking about the LLM use cases in that sector as well. Without further ado, here's co-founder and co-CEO Ori Goshen in conversation with Emerge CEO and Head of Research, Daniel Fagella. So, Ori, welcome to the program. Hi, Don. Hi, everyone. Good to be able to dive in on a topic that is pretty darn hot right now, and that is generative AI. I think that a lot of this was hypothetical four years ago, was kind of interesting, and now it's clearly hitting the ground running in a major way. Enterprise leaders are interested in what is this stuff, what I need to understand about it. You have the technical background, Ori, and we're going to talk business in a moment, but I'd love for you to start with, how do you explain generative AI in principle to business people? Yeah, I think it's there are, there are kind of different lenses you can look at generative AI, but in principle, you can think of it as a technology that helps us translate our thoughts, our ideas into digital assets. Could be text, could be image, could be video, could be audio, intellectual amplifier in a way. And it has, you know, it's very broad. It has many different applications and way we can utilize it. But in principle, it's a way for us to humans to interact with computers, explaining or guiding computers what we'd like to achieve and have them response with with answers or, or, or digital assets that are, that are useful. And we kind of had the, you know, as I mentioned before, we've had folks from the generative AI world on here. I know you guys play in the text space very much. I know there's this whole idea of sort of yes. autocomplete on steroids people have used as an analogy, for example. Is that accurate or do you think there's a better analogy? Because I think it's important to know sort of what is the AI doing? You know, when we can create a wonderful poem in the, in you know, the Turkish language, or we can create a whole essay about, you know, Napoleon's strategic flaws in his Russian campaign, you know, just out of the air, it, it seems like magic, but it's not. Talk a little bit about how this stuff is as capable as it is now. Yeah. So actually, I think it caught everyone by surprise. What? Because it's been around for a while that the basic technology, and I'm, I'm, I'm talking specifically about the transformer architecture, which was, you know, first publicly talked about as part of the publication in 2017. 
by Maswani and the folks at, at Google called a paper called Attention is All You Need. I think it was here for a while, but kind of surprising to see what happened when you scale this technology, when you scale. When I mean scale, you use more compute, more data, you start getting very capable models. And so that's literally the, the way it works. You can think about it in a very simplified way where you take um, these neural nets, which are huge monsters, and you give them a very simple task to you give them a sequence of words and you, you ask them to complete, they have to predict the next, the following sequence of words. And if you kind of brute force and you do it repeatedly a lot of, a lot of times, then the weights of the neural nets start to adjust in a way that it actually is successful in predicting the, the next words. But what happens in this process, you get a very rough, uh, nuanced representation of words and concepts. And if you start scaling that, then I know that the technical metaphor is autocomplete on steroids, but you actually encode a lot of word knowledge and a lot of abstraction when you do that process. So when when you start prompting now the system, we say, give me an essay about Napoleon or a poem in a certain style, you start seeing the system that kind of follow that path. So technically, I think the autocomplete analogy is, is correct, but conceptually, we get much more because these models carry a lot of word knowledge and useful information. And that whole idea of encoding knowledge, you know, it's, it's of course very, it's very abstract, this idea of sort of, I think to many of us, surprising that you can drink in disparate sources of information and create something that's wildly unique, but in, in, in many cases, impressively on point and, and maybe, you know, better than many human beings, the vast majority of human beings would be able to do. Of course, there are famously errors as well. We'll talk about that. But, yeah. you know, when you talk about training these models, I presume that in a business context, it's maybe less important to read every Wikipedia article and it's maybe more important to drink in things related to the business problem, maybe customer service issues or marketing campaign headlines or whatever the case may be. Is it also important to drink in Wikipedia just for all that encoded wisdom connected between entities and all that wild stuff? Talk to us a little bit about not just writing an impressive poem, but you know, when we apply this in business, what do we have to train on to get a general level of capability? Yeah. So I think that the approach you'd like to have what we call foundation model that is trained on general purpose knowledge. Wikipedia is, I think, a great, a great example, but we have you know, other, other sources of information that provide generalistic uh, knowledge about the world. And then there is a way to specialize these models, you can fine tune them to specific domains. So if you'd like to have a language model that is, has a lot of has better performance in language in the financial world. It knows all the terms and it has all the connections between the concepts in the financial world, then it makes sense to find unit on financial corpus. We actually at AI21, we call, we call these, and we coined that term, we call these language blades. We use all database analogy where you have 
specialized language models that are good at a particular domain. So they carry the broad knowledge because they're they're based on a foundation model, but then they're they're fine-tuned in a specific domain. Got it. And so we're going to start bringing this towards the business realm in a bit, but we're still going to get conceptual. I want to ask it this way. When business people are thinking about what they might want to use this technology for, it sounds as though, yes, we we need a basis of a really powerful general language model trained on more or less everything in whatever languages we're interacting on. But then there's individual slices that we can train it on further. You know, you're calling them language blades about, let's just say, you know, even within the world of finance, obviously we can get much more narrow than that, right? We could talk about commodities trading. Absolutely. Okay. So we do a tr- commodities trading language blade. Or we could do a, you know, within marketing, we could do, I don't know, I'm thinking about landing page calls to action to get people to turn into a lead or something like that. But tell me if I'm right or wrong here, there would be a language blade around, you know, a a narrower corpus to kind of triple down and really train on that's really tight to that space. Is there also something to train on really tight to the space related to the business? So if I'm at, you know, Walmart or I'm at, you know, CNN and I want to do something, are there? It looks like there's maybe gradients of training. Talk us through how many yeah. kinds of gradients there are to make this stuff really practical. Yeah. So, and by the way, I, when I said fine-tuning, it alluded to a certain, from, from a technical perspective, but I was, I was referring to a more conceptual term here. But to your point, yeah, so we think of language blades in, in different levels of granularity could be in a domain-specific, could be for an organization, could be for a specific function within the organization, let's say a financial controller within company X. And it could be also on a personal level. So that's why I mentioned the fine-tuning, the way the technical term is maybe misleading because there are different ways to customize these models to be optimal for the different types of granularity that I mentioned. But yes. we, we conceptually, we see, we see that we'll probably be business point of view. I predict that in a couple of years, every company will have its own language blade that can be used in different applications. Huh. That's interesting. Every company. So what comes to my mind when you say that is maybe every company has, you know, they, they have enterprise level knowledge, right? Sort of corporate floating knowledge that no one human skull has everything contained in it. There might be a style of how we communicate to each other and how we communicate yeah. to customers. And you know, I almost wonder, tell me if I'm wrong, I almost wonder if they're different because, you know, our communication with customers in chat, you know, for a B2C product might be very different than, you know, our sales messaging that we use to close deals for our enterprise products or whatever the case may be. So it almost feels like we'd have a shelf full of these slices of sort of elements yeah. of the business. Is that an accurate way to think about the future for you? Or Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You, you just, I think you need to consider that the distribution, the way, the way the models work, like if you start prompting them or asking them to do tasks in a certain field, let's say we put a language blood in the organizational level. We take company, company X and we create a language blade for it. Then in different applications or in different modalities, the model will probably follow that pattern. If a company X customer service style is, is done in a certain way, when it is used in 
context of customer service, the model will follow that trend almost automatically because the distribution of the task is trying to follow is very oh. similar to the one to the technology they encoded. Wow. Okay. So now this is really interesting. And I think, again, the folks that are not as connected to this technically, you know, I certainly don't build these systems myself, are not going to be as familiar with this. But what you're getting at is if we can train on the entire corpus of what we do in the business, the model would understand, here's the context in which we're answering this question. It's a yeah. sales thing. And so we're going to do it in the sales way to things that are similar to this. Yeah. So there isn't that much guidance. The same, yeah, exactly. The same way where you go to the general purpose language model and you type in, uh, write me a, I don't know, a cold sales email to XYZ, it generates something that looks like a cold sales email, right? It's, yes. it's the same it's the same thing. Ah, okay, great, great. So this is really, this is very, very interesting here. And it also seems to tie to this general idea of context. One of the reasons that it's interesting to drink in all of Wikipedia is I can ask a question about geography and history and it can connect the dots and tell me what happened at this place at this time and say something about it. And I could say, write a humorous poem about everything tragic that happened in the year 1830 in Lausanne. And like it could just pull up history, pull up humor and tie the context. It almost feels like the same thing could be helpful in sales. Like, hey, you know, write a yep. response email to this objection that has to do with this product. Well, it would have to go train on the product knowledge. It would have to train on the customer experience yep. problems with that product. And then it would have to train on sales. So there's a cross context element here that it sounds like for you, that's why a company would have a language blade that might be company-wide for them. Yep, exactly. Wow. From practical reasons, it might make sense to narrow it down to a certain organizational department or even a business function. Yeah. Uh, but conceptually, this could be an, uh, an organizational-wide blade. This is really fascinating because we think today about things like organizational knowledge, where you know when people leave a company, it's, it's very challenging for us to discover what was in their head. This almost feels like a way to lock in more organizational knowledge in some sense, you know, where we're not going to forget how to handle these edge cases for some insurance underwriting issue. We're not going to forget how to handle, you know, these other edge cases for how we do an email campaign for this kind of product or something like that. Do you see that as well? Or what are the other big upsides of having this, this company-wide sort of language model in the future? Yeah, I think, so one thing we should keep in mind is that when you use these language models, so they, they encode some knowledge, we discussed this, but they don't encode it in an explicit, controllable, yes, 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 way, yes, yes. right? So it, it's still very limited. You need to work hard into extract certain knowledge. And also, and we'll speak about that, there is a problem of reliability because by the end of the day, it's, it's a statistical model. Yes. But I think the, on the other side, when you apply this lang language model in the context of an organization, creating the content, documenting what happened or knowledge becomes so easy, much more streamlined. So as, a, as a, almost a side effect, you get more knowledge or enterprise knowledge being retained in the, in the enterprise. So you're bringing up some great points and you're really making my brain kind of jump to places. For the audience, I'm sure the same thing is happening. Yes, it encodes this knowledge, but it's locked in some wild, deep network somewhere. There's no exact way to say, you know, how do we, and it's it's literally right there crystallized in six bullet points. Nope, that's not how it works, right? It's, it's hidden, it's buried, it's all over the place. I can almost imagine a world, 
where yes, I think there's going to be some human adjustment to make sure that there's quality control here. You mentioned the statistical model stuff. We're going to get to that at the end of the episode. But I can almost imagine a future where our standard operating procedures are automatically conjured and updated all the time by some language model. So our customer service, if this, then that, if this, then that, if this, then that, it's sort of the map and the web of the exact templates and best practices for all scenarios. It's just this living, breathing, real-time updated thing. So any human that checks it is checking like the latest version of it as updated by the, the model itself. So like you said, it's not explicit, but it seems like there might be ways to pull some explicit knowledge with some reliability yeah. from these systems. Exactly. I think there's... That's actually what the company is all about, the neurosymbolic approach, where you have some knowledge represented explicitly. And I think that that interaction is the missing piece in making this LLM technology be applicable in, in the business context. So you, you imagine that you help, as you said, you help people document their stuff, streamline every, everything. Then one artifact would be how to put it in structure knowledge or in a, in a, in a, you know, like a data store or a persistent knowledge that could be accessed, controlled, could be validated, and so on. But on the other hand, we'll have these, the language model that can use these structured, grounded knowledge and pull whatever they, they need to make it flexible or custom to, to your now particular needs. So if I'll, let's take an example. To yes, make it yes, yeah, please. Let's say I'm a sales, we, we, we spoke about sales. Let's say a sales uh, an account executive comes and say, I want to find a way to address a rejection from a customer. And this is the customer. So then the system will pull the relevant customer, customer data and all the records. And when it generates that creative suggestion, it will use, incorporate some of the, more explicit knowledge inside the suggestion. We will take that into consideration. Wow. So many interesting things are coming out of this. So I'm with you. I think this does make sense. What you're getting at is, hey, reliability in business where the consequences are are higher, right? If I'm just writing Twitter tweets, you know, for my personal account, who really cares if it's a little bit wrong, right? But if I'm responding to my biggest wealth management client via email, I care a lot if it's wrong. So- there's, exactly. there's different strata here. What you're getting at is the way that, that this stuff will make its way into business is by having basically scaffolding of hard-coded information that the LLMs can, can break yes. off of so that whenever they're referencing X, there is not an, a statistical idea of X. There is a hard X. And there's not a statistical idea yes. of Y. There's a hard Y. And so it can bounce around, it can connect dots, but whenever it comes down to earth on this topic, there's only one source of truth and it can yank that in. Now, this is fascinating because as you and I both know, some of those hard sources of truth change, right? If I have a CRM, we're talking sales, this person, Sally, no longer works at that company or this person, Sally, changed her position or she changed her email address. That's the tough part. So it does seem to me like there's some parts of this hard-coded knowledge, like the rules of physics, that'll probably just get trained into every basic language model, right? Every basic language model will have things that are the same for everybody for eternity will get baked into off-the-shelf models that any college student can use. But the things that are hard, we're going to have to reference them as hard. There's only one source of X. But now we're going to have to be crazy sure that that X is getting updated 
very regularly. So we have to build a scaffolding and we have to maintain a scaffolding for LLMs to sit on top of. Is this the proper analogy or are you imagining this differently? I want to make sure I'm following you, Ori. No, you are, you're absolutely following me. This, it requires this machinery that augments language models with more grounded knowledge. And that knowledge can be represented in unstructured text. It can also be represented in, in tables and yes. in structured form. But the notion of what's the source of truth is, is very important. And how do you plug in that source of truth into the language models? So if there's, there's some progress being done on that front, including a paper that we just recently released called Realm, Retrieval Augmented Language Models. But it's still, I would say it's still an open area for research. Yeah. And, and you mentioned something I liked. You, you mentioned poems and essays. And we see a lot of the use in language models today is being just actually doing homework. Yep. And we yep. like to take it from the, from, uh, language models for homework, we like to make them language models for work. They have to be much more reliable. They have to, their output <laughs> must, has, has to be much more grounded. And we have a, re- a way to interact with the user. Another notion, which is very important. So the, I don't know if you had, I'm sure you had experience with working with the, the recent language models as well as with chat GPT. And you see that it's very confident. Even if it's wrong, it's absolutely confident. And I think there's, there's an, a missing notion of, uh, we call it humble AI. So there's, there are times where you're not sure about the answer and you'd like to reflect that or like to, would like to ask follow-up questions that can then help you seek for the relevant information and generate an appropriate answer. So there's still... Things are very, I think people don't realize how things are very early and there's a lot of excitement. And I think it's not just the hype, it's the excitement. It's just because we, we see what's possible. But now we have to make these systems more reliable and prepare them for work environment. From homework to work. I like it. I know that my editor who's listening yes. right now is probably like writing down headline headline ideas from homework to work. I don't know if we're going to go with that, but I, I, that's, it's a good analogy. Now, many things, again, coming to mind about how this stuff gets practical. Number one, we see in, if we look at AI in any industry we cover, finance, you know, healthcare, whatever, there are definitely some kind of confidence readings on these things, right? For a customer service response, if we're not above 95% certain or whatever our threshold is, then a human has to review it before we're going to send the response. If we're screening for fraud for an insurance policy, we're not just screening everybody out or in, right? We're, we're, we, have a, in we have a confidence yeah. threshold. If it's below a confidence threshold, a human being has to look at it. And so the same thing seems patently, obviously necessary here. But of course, those thresholds of certainty are going to be different by use case, by company, et cetera. And so there's going to be a lot of customization. I see a world where these hard-coded scaffolding, hard X, hard Y, right? Whenever you talk about this topic, this is the address of this business. Don't mess it up, right? These are the publications of this author. Don't mess it up. I see a world where AI is updating that hard-coded stuff by drinking in information from the internet. And then when LLMs run through it, they're running through the most modern version of it. And of course, there's all kinds of new complexity yeah. that comes out of that. But that seems like the only realistic way that this is going to happen. AI is going to build what the hard model of reality is, and humans are hopefully going to have some oversight. And then AI is going to drink off of that hard model, play off of that hard model, 
in order to communicate with people in the world. So anyway, this is great. We're going to get into business, business applications here. I love this vision of how we get towards certainty. And you've actually painted it quite well. The way we get there is we crawl up through this kind of scaffolding and, and we maintain it and we provide this humble element. Both of those are really important ingredients. And I feel like people don't talk about that enough. Let's talk a little bit about some of the applications where you see this stuff as low hanging fruit, making a difference in business. You guys are working in gaming, in e-commerce, in other sectors, and you're one of the players that are sort of racing forward in this space. Talk a little bit about what kinds of business use cases you're excited about now and where this stuff gets practical from your standpoint. Yeah. So I think a year back, these language models were in a place where it started with creativity use cases. So a lot of gaming, a lot of copywriting, content creation. And so it's a spectrum, right? But they were on the creativity end of the spectrum. What we're now seeing gradually moving towards the productivity end of the mm-hmm. spectrum. And I feel like that's where we're, we're heading. Uh, let's start with the kind of content. I think there's certain types of content that could be automated at scale. Imagine product descriptions for e-commerce, right? Product descriptions are really important. And it's hard to create good product descriptions that are both, you know, they're, they're crawled, they index nicely with search engines, and they also provide the right messages to, to the customers. So imagine that now you can create a high quality product descriptions at scale and a very low cost. And oh, guess what? You don't only provide one version, you'll be able to create multiple versions that directed, segmented for, for different audiences. And that basically changes the dynamic of, of content. Content becomes something much more targeted and, and much more nuanced. And it's much, much cheaper to produce. So I just, I just give one example in the e-commerce space. I think we'll, we'll, see, we'll see that coming in very rapidly and we'll see the ROI. The ROI is, is extremely clear. Yeah, go go. I'm just I'm imagining as you're talking here. So I, I like this idea of product descriptions. We had the CTO of Azure on who talked about CarMax doing descriptions of cars, basically a product description, right? You know, taking yep. pictures and then turning that into reliable text that's Google crawlable and is also human readable in a way that's enjoyable and appealing, right? Because it it needs to fulfill multiple cases, right? And you brought up a brilliant point, which is that in the future, why would I market the same car to an old woman the same way I would to a 25 year old guy? Why would I do that? I would never want to do that. I want to make the sale. I'm in business. I have payroll. And so every message that hits every person or every web experience ideally will be customized. And I see a world where there is no more analog. You know, oh, this is our product description, singular. Yeah, right. You're going to go out of business. I mean, there's a threshold after which if you're not hyper-tailoring your messages, you're not going to reach customers. I also see a world though where whether it's contact lenses or or computer screens or otherwise, where the user has a filter to say, don't give me marketing language. Give me three bullet points for every product I want to read. Yep. So we're not even reading yep. the company's stuff, right? We're reading the way we want to. I see an yep. arms race in every direction with this stuff. I don't mean that in a bad way, but yep. it's kind of inevitable. Yeah. That's exactly the way we, we see it. Hmm. Um, think like the, the end consumers, the end users will have the controllability to read the way they'd like to read consume content they'd like to, to consume content but also businesses will be able to 
very easily provide endless amount of possibilities for different segments and audiences. So it, it goes both ways. Yeah, Absolutely. really fascinating. Again, I, I think it's, and I, I've been saying this for like six years, there's a point by which you and I are never going to read the same book or watch the same movie. I mean, unless we yeah. want to and then talk about it, but if I want to be entertained or educated, it's hyper-customized to me or I'm not doing it, period. Yeah. And, and I think the same is going to be the case across the board. So let's maybe touch on one other quick example. You mentioned product descriptions. That's really good. Actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end on two short questions because you also mentioned creativity to productivity. What do you see as the difference yeah. between the two? Some people would be like, well, I don't really know how different those are. But when you think about crossing the chasm from creativity to productivity, is it just a matter of certainty and reducing error? Or is there something else that crosses that bridge? I think certainty and reducing error is a big, is a big part of it. But I also think that there's, there are other considerations like the costs that we see that constantly the cost of using language models is reducing because of computer efficiencies and so on. So now you can apply the, the language models on more and more data and, and be performant. So it's just from a practical ROI level. Yes, yes, uh, yes. It's an important consideration. But the accuracy of the models and their applicability is a key factor to going from the creativity to pro to the productivity yeah. stuff, we have to the outputs needs to be right more often than not, right? And so we're definitely ent entering that area, but it's still early days for it. Yeah, um, man. Well, and you mentioned the two core ideas for getting that error down. There's the scaffolding notion yeah. of determining our hard realities. And then there's the confidence interval idea of at that juncture where we're going to use that information, make sure it passes some kind of a litmus test. Both of those are very compelling pathways towards making this more productive from an ROI standpoint. Is there any other really quick, just to keep the audience's mind kind of dancing after this episode, it talked about product descriptions. What's one other example of low-hanging fruit that might get people thinking about their own companies and where this stuff fits in? Yeah, I think another example is how intelligence assistance is actually going to be almost in, in any application. I mean, let's take retail, for example. Some retail, you know, has complicated products that are hard to explain. Yes. And that, you know, you go to a shop and you advise with an expert and you tell him, I have this project and I'm going to use this tool or whatever for this and that purposes. And and you need an expert to really get an advice and a lot of knowledge about the products to make an informed decision. Now, I mean, people need to make their own research, which is, which is hard. And most people don't have the, they just want to, you know, they go to the store and ask the expert. Now you'll have these digital experts that you can actually ask questions oh. and they'll be knowledgeable. They'll tell you, they'll tell you things about the products. They'll tell you things you need to consider. They'll ask you follow-up questions about how you're going to use them. And then help you actually find the product that suits you the most. Whoa! Yeah. Decision making, decision making is also is going to be, a, I think, a big theme in generative AI for for retail and by the way for other types of decision making, right? Financial decision making, same. Got it. Yeah. So okay. So I'm imagining a future. Tell me if I'm right here. Where, you know, maybe I'm buying some fancy extra monitors for my computer or something like that. And I'm, I'm interested in 
you know, latency and pixels and uh, other things and interoperability with certain kinds of equipment that's not listed necessarily on the product description. And I, I just want to type yeah. into a box, like, which of your monitors over 17 inches wide can do these three things? And then it'll say, it'll list yeah. them and then say, yeah, well, are you using this for gaming or something else? Huh. Exactly. Cool. Just like exactly. a human, a human on the telephone would do the same thing, but being able to scale exactly. that. Okay. That's cool. This is getting my yeah. gears turning. I know we're, I know we're up on time, Ori, but this has been a real blast. I, I appreciate you cracking open not only the the concept itself of generative AI, but how the progress towards error reduction is going to make its way in and a couple of these beachhead use cases that I think almost everybody listening can can imagine a couple of in their own in their own enterprise. So I really appreciate you being with us. Thank you so much for your time today, Ori. Thank you for having me. Wrapping up today's episode, I know we talk a lot on this program about this oncoming, it might already be here already, but this oncoming market of bespoke large language models. And I think the way that Ori phrased it on today's episode of envisioning a world where every company has their own quote unquote language blade or at least a model that is well-versed in the enterprise knowledge of, of company positioning language, as we like to call it here at Emerge. This all emphasizes how immeasurably this technology is going to change the industrial landscape and as far as conventional ways of conceptualizing ROI. I know this is something that many of you need deep in your digital transformations might already realize, but for the uninitiated out there, especially in the post-chat GPT gold rush, this is something definitely to keep your head around in terms of large language models and generative AI. On behalf of Daniel and the entire team here at Emerge, thanks so much for joining us today, and we'll catch you next time on the AI and Business Podcast.